I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast. Produced in association with Advantage Go. Enabling an enterprise view of exposure. There are two types of journalists. There are those who really don't like or trust anyone they write about. And then there are those that are the opposite and seem to like everyone. I'm one of the latter. My natural bias is to get a positive vibe from most of the people I interview. Because of this, I make sure I try and balance this inbuilt positivity with a reality check from others around me. But now I don't work in a large business anymore. It'll be you, the listener, who has to help me out. I'm only mentioning all of this because I found today's guest off the charts in the likability stakes. Richard Watson is the co-founder and CEO of Inigo Insurance, a specialty insurance and reinsurance startup at Lloyd's. The business is growing rapidly in this transitioning market and is looking to build something highly focused that seeks to deploy the best new thinking and analysis to big-ticket specialty risk. In this discussion, we get right to the heart of what it is like to be building a differentiated new Lloyds franchise in the 2021 market, Lloyds market reform, and the applications of algorithms and other smart technologies. Richard is a London market veteran, and his 33 years at Lloyds blue chip Hiscox culminated with an eight-year stint as its chief underwriting officer. So his views carry a lot of weight. We also examine Richard's ideas on how to create a new business that attracts smart, curious and fun people and makes them want to stay. Richard gives the impression of someone having the time of their life, making the most of a rare opportunity to put a career's learning into practice. I had a great time, but then I always do. So it's over to you to tell me anything I'm missing. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Well, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to the Voice of Insurance. Inigo, you've been building this business now for quite a long time, I mean, almost a year, probably a bit longer, actually, I suppose. If- we started in about May of 2020, I think is when we first started. Did the first few months of planning, then got into the capital raise and started business January 2021. So what kind of business is it when people say, Richard, what are you doing with Inigo? What's the answer? I would say to someone, oh, I think they look like quite a traditional Lloyd's business. Is that the right way of describing it? Well, we're very happy to be described as a Lloyd's business. I mean, I've spent most of my career in and around the Lloyd's market. I love it as a marketplace. I think it 
is a world leader in what we do. So I'm delighted to be part of that. The traditional word I would slightly pause on, just because traditional to me doesn't define good. Traditional to me sounds like, well, let's doing it how we used to do it, or it sounds a little bit kind of an old boys club. And the last thing I want us to be is that. So good to me is smart, efficient, fast, tireless, all those things that make a great company. And I would love us to aspire to be those things rather than a traditional anything, frankly. But Lloyd's business, no, we're delighted to be described as a Lloyd's business. And how I would describe the business, I think, is specialist. We set up with the idea of being a very focused play that we would look at six or seven core lines of business where we felt that we could attract teams who could be leaders in their class, who could bring capacity that was really needed, and who could price and understand customers' needs and produce the sort of products and coverage and engage with the sort of relationship that customers were looking for. And it's typically big ticket, high average premium, low policy count, very kind of specialist areas that we've ended up with. So it's areas like DNO, GL, property DNF, it's treaty, those sorts of areas where people are looking for real expertise. It's not all about process or brand building or anything. I mean, those elements always come into it, but at the core of it is understanding risk. And you can't do that in all lines to all people, but you can do it well in some lines if you get the right teams. And that's what we're aiming to do. Tradition, you like the tradition of Lloyd's, the tradition of excellence, but you're not too hung up about whether they're all going to be wearing ties or not. I generally couldn't care less what they wear, although that's a dangerous thing to say in public, isn't it? But <laughs> I'm actually more interested in what's going on in their head than what they're wearing. For the record, we're on a Zoom call and no one wears ties on Zoom calls, so, so fair enough. <laughs> We should probably talk about tradition. Um, obviously, one of Lloyd's great traditions was, of course, up until 30 years ago, was only a high net worth backed and names backed capital structure at Lloyd's. That was the only way that Lloyd's got its underwriting capital. Obviously, a huge amount of things have changed since then. You were speaking at the Association of Lloyd's Members uh, Conference, which is the names kind of trade body. Yeah. And you mentioned that you might be getting some names capital on board with the syndicate for next year. Is that right? Or were you just being very polite to the names? <laughs> well, it's possible to do both, I think. I mean, I think we'd always be polite to the names. I'd love to get names capital on board. I tried to explain at that conference that we didn't use names capital early on because we were up against a really tough time limit. And when you're trying to raise equity capital and equity comes forward that also, by the way, wants to run insurance risk doesn't just want to fund an agency. The idea of setting up and then turning to Lloyd's members, we just ran out of time. And I wasn't certain that we could write enough business in year one to keep both our equity capital happy and some names as well. And it may well be that we run out of time for 22 and it ends up being in 2023. I think it's important that whatever we do with names, we get the structure right. I like having them on board because they know the business. I mean, probably more than any other capital source, they know what Lloyd's does and they know what it is that we're about and they understand volatility and they understand opportunity and i think for a lot of corporate capital the big challenge comes post loss when everyone is scared everyone at the top of the company is saying well how much are you going to lose how big is the loss and the reality is for the first few months you really haven't got much of a clue and i think that's exactly when opportunities can present themselves and you need capital who's been there before and can jump on it and i think names are very much in that category. So from my perspective, there's lots of pluses in using names. Now there are downsides as well. There's an extra level of complexity in terms of recording, accounting, if they want tenure. And 
what we've tried to do with Inigo is set up a really lean model so that we can offer customers a really efficient form of risk transfer. So anything that starts to add complexity, cost, an element of uncertainty is something we need to really fully understand and try and find ways around. So I think we will in time have names capitalized and city hope so, and we work very hard to make that happen. But the exact structure and how much and when still to be decided. If we could do it for next year, I'd be delighted, but it's probably more realistically 2023. But I hope over five or 10 years, that'll be a big part of what we do. Yep. And I suppose there's so many more structures than there used to be, the very traditional name structures. And you know, the, yeah. the, there are all sorts of things and different vehicles. I take it from this that you're keen on not wanting to replicate a lot of that old cost. If there was a leaner way of doing it, you'd do it. I think simplicity is everything. I've just seen where that strategy of managing third-party capital, whether it's names or ILS funds or other reinsurance relationships, it can lead to an awful lot of complexity. And with that complexity, a huge amount of cost. And our business, as you know so well, is massively cyclical. So anything that lands you with a big cost base is going to be a real burden to you at that point in the cycle when margins are thin, if they're there at all. So you've got to try and build a structure that is capable of lasting through the piece, not just in the hard market. You don't want it to be just a hard market play. So coming into this, not only were we going to be very focused on the lines of business, but also on keeping the cost really, really low. And if we can sneak it in under 10% in terms of admin expenses, under 10% of our premium, I think that puts us in a pretty good place. But it's very, very easy to see it creep to 12, 15. There's lots of people who have expense ratios higher than that. So from my perspective, simplicity is going to be key in whatever structure, whatever capital structure we do, the simplicity of administration and running it has got to be key. With all the ramp up costs that you've been able to come in under 10%, that would be amazing. But I presume that's more like a business plan thing. But there's that imperative to grow. You've mentioned that you wouldn't have been big enough to allow the names and your startup capital providers to be happy. Yeah. Be getting a big enough piece of the action in year one. But you know, you're a startup business, you're bound to be growing, and one would presume into year two and year three. How much are you likely to be growing into 2022? Well, we're still going through the business plan process. So I don't want to hurt Lloyd's by uh, telling, preemption. You yeah. telling you I'm preempting my preemption. Exactly right. It's like, come on, do you want to make life difficult for me? Which I know you don't. But I think if you look, I mean, the reality was we probably had half the team there in the middle of Q2, that kind of vital period of Q1, Q2, particularly in Q1 and Q2. We, we really had half the team there. The other half were serving their notice out. They hadn't arrived yet. They tended to arrive in typically towards the end of Q2. So we now have a fully staffed team. So 2022 will be our first full year of everybody being there and present and able to write the full calendar year. And we will likely end up in 2021 writing just over $420 million gross. If you said we're going to double it, it wouldn't be a million miles off. Well, that's quite punchy growth. This is not all just earning. It's just things well, earning through. It's, it's actually doing more. Would it be doing more? It's having the full team there for the full year. So it's just being a fully operating entity rather than half the team being there. So it is punchy but achievable. We'd like to think that we are working our way into the market sensibly without completely upending everybody. I think it's important that we focus on the profitability. One of the reasons I've been reluctant to talk too much about 
exact top lines on what we're going to do because I've seen people set top line targets before and it go horribly wrong. And what's critical for us is to be able to show that we can outperform the market. So I hope that's what we can do. It sounds very arrogant when you say it out loud like that, but that's what our target is. That's what our capital want from us. So from my perspective, the combined ratio, the loss ratio, what it is we're underwriting is far more important than the overall top line. I think if you have good teams, good underwriters, and they select good risks, a good portfolio, the top line will be what it'll be. I mean, they're all working like crazy. The joy of being a startup is that everyone's motivation, everyone's sense of the opportunity is huge. So the team that's there is working really hard. And I'll be very excited to see what a full year of trading looks like. So you're very focused, but within that focus, where are the best opportunities at the moment then? Where are you most happy when you're getting your preliminary sort of management data back from your underwriters? So for us, the areas that I mentioned before that we focused on, I guess, are where we see the biggest opportunity. And they are typically areas where there was particularly in 2019. And again, during 2020, a real demand for capacity and particularly for expertise. I mean, I think there was a lack of leadership as people retrenched and moved away from some of the positions they had. There were gaps opening up in programs and there was a sense of, look, can someone please step forward who knows what they're doing, who can fill that? So the areas that I mentioned, I think, are where we see the biggest opportunity. And it's partly that dynamic of capacity in the marketplace and people needing expertise. But it's also that the areas we focused on are areas where I think we haven't yet seen the full opportunity that is out there with data and analytics. I think the point that we're at now in terms of one's ability to analyze the portfolio, to analyze individual risks and to try and understand more about the causes of loss and what are, you know, what you can do to modify them is really going to be exciting over the next few years. And all the areas that we're in are ones where there isn't a great deal of science being aimed at them. So I think there is a big opportunity. And if you look at some of the binders market, homeowners market, the auto market, you look at those big markets. I mean, there's some smart people doing smart things in motor and homeowners in UK, Europe, US, et cetera. But I think in the bigger ticket, that whole kind of capability of data and analytics really hasn't been applied anywhere near as much as it could be. We're still rating risks in a way that is really quite basic if we're brutally honest with ourselves. I mean, I think a lot of the specialty market tends to rate more on a sort of relative basis. You know, the portfolio wasn't profitable at this price. If I charge double, that is going to be profitable. So your rate is much more relative to prior years and prior year performance than it is an independent view of probability of risk on an individual account. And there's a lot of accounts where you'll get an oil drilling risk where they're rating on feet drilled, or you'll get a hospital risk where it's numbers of beds. You know, those are the kind of, not the only, but the major drivers of the rating function. And God, on cyber, I mean, how does anybody race? And there's a thousand different things you could look at. But I think the potential to really improve the depth of knowledge and the, the expertise that we all apply to coming up with a, a sense of the probability of loss is really, really exciting over the next few years. And I think it's just at that really interesting stage where the amount of data you can collect and analyze compared to what it was even a few years ago is phenomenal. That's the opportunity, I think, in our lines of business. So when we look at areas that we love, where do we have the specialty and where do we have the opportunity to make a difference with data? We're moving away from the old experience rating to actually truly try and look at the exposure in a sensible sort of way. Is, is that it? 
And would it be right to say that big technology has only really looked at the more commoditized ends of things because obviously the data is far more available and more easy to crunch if they're all homogeneous, big numbers of small things? Yeah. If you look at areas like catastrophe rating, there's a lot of science that's gone into AIR, RMS, into the big Karen Clark's models, et cetera. I mean, there's a lot of science and research gone into that, but that is just one small element of what we do. The vast majority of the losses that we pay are unrelated to those sort of perils. And I think you're right. A lot of the time and attention has understandably been turned to big data areas like those personal lines and lower average premium fields. But that's what excites me. That's why I think we're going to have a lot of fun trying to do something new on these other areas. That's one of the compelling reasons for setting the company up was, I think, a sense of the opportunity there. Sounds really, really interesting. But isn't it dangerous though, when you've got such small numbers of very high severity insured risks? So as you said at the beginning, you know, not very high numbers of contracts. You're trying to sort of look at just one or two grains of sand and try and tell us what the whole beach is looking like. Rest assured, there are multiple risks in doing any. Is that cause? <laughs> is it cause? Is Absolutely, it, yeah. Uh, coincidence or causation? But again, I have to say at a personal level, that's why it's so fascinating. And I'm sure we'll come on to algorithmic underwriting. But I think the bit that I find more interesting is that machine learning and that artificial intelligence, the bit that will help you try and understand, is it coincidence, is it causation, et cetera. There are dozens of reasons why you've got to be careful looking at data sets and what is implied in your analysis. Uh, But it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And it doesn't mean that you can't do it carefully. It doesn't mean that you can't start from where we are now. And let's assume for a moment that's a solid base, which, by the way, I think is an extremely debatable point. When you go look at the results over time to say, well, that was pretty dangerous for some people. So I, I think you're starting from a position that is, okay, somewhat justifiable, but you've got to refine it. And it may not be completely reinventing the wheel and somehow thinking that you're going to find one new data set that suddenly upends the whole thing. And, oh, my God, we've got the sort of moments of light. I mean, it's not going to be like that. But I think if you can work from your existing base and use the data to make you 1% better here, 2% better here, 1% better on this aspect, that's how you open up our performance over time. So I don't think it has to be that we're going to put it all on black because we think black is the new thing. I don't think it's quite as binary as that, although rest assured there are plenty of rabbit holes to go down. It is surprising how much you can tell from just a few grains of sand these days. I was watching a documentary about Christopher Columbus, and they've always been arguing about which country he came from. The Spanish wanted to be Spanish and the Italians wanted to be Italian, and I think the Portuguese have a claim on him too. But it seems that from where he was buried, even just two little bits of soil, I think, were able to tell. Where, <laughs> I can't remember where he did come from in the end. But So actually, you can do a huge amount. You can. But anyway, presumably you got into all these classes because you thought there was an opportunity and that those prices were becoming adequate, or your gut feeling was telling you that they yeah. were becoming adequate. Do you think there are any of the classes even that you're still not quite happy with where they've got to or where there might be more rate rises to come? It seems that there's a little bit of tempering in rate at the moment, or is that just the brokers buttering everyone up for the renewals? It's always interesting to kind of take the press angle if you read the trade press. It did feel like six months ago, everybody wanted to be the first to break the bad news that the hard market was over and that rates were reducing. But then, of course, they weren't really reducing, just the rate of increase was reducing. Well, I can live with that. We can't have the damn thing going up 20% every year, regardless. I mean, it makes a mockery. So I think there was a sense of, okay, are we on top of that? But then we've had quite a few losses. And with everything else, all the other uncertainty in the economy and 
the vulnerability of businesses these days to supply chains, to COVID, to climate change, to you name it. I think there's so many challenges out there. It's a brave person who says, we've got enough rate. We know there was not enough rate. We've had four or five years of knowing there clearly was not enough rate. It feels a little soon to be claiming victory as though we've definitely got it licked when we're in such a dynamic environment. So from my point of view, there are classes we chose not to go in. And that was, to some degree, a lack of perception that the rate was going up enough. We didn't perceive the rate was going up enough. But in many cases, it was much more to do with the style of the business. You know, was there a capacity crunch? Was it a big process heavy? Were average premiums 5,000 bucks or something like this? Did I have to build up a big processing arm? Do I have to start delegating underwriting authority to MGAs all over the world, et cetera, et cetera, to capture that smaller business? And from my point of view, the other classes, so I mean, we, we didn't go into PA, we didn't go into hull, we didn't go into cargo, we didn't go into contingency, lots of areas that people can make money in and there's some good underwriters in, but I didn't feel a compelling enough argument to want to go in it. I didn't feel like we were going to add much to the marketplace by going into those sectors. And the other thing was just trying to understand that you cannot be all things to all people. And I think at times people try and do too much in a business and try and present the fully functioning, all things, multiple offices, different countries, all lines of business, you can end up with an awful lot of less exciting, subscale, generalist sort of businesses that don't really do anything particularly brilliantly, you just do a lot of them. I just didn't want to do that. I think for a lot of insurance businesses, one of the observations you can make is that a lot of them make 80% of their money from 20% of their lines of business over time. And why not just do those 20% really well and forget the rest? And when we set the business up, if you know you can't do all things to all people, let's just focus on areas where we know our capacity is valued and we're wanted. And we know that we can get teams in who do it well. Let's just do that. And let's not be overly ambitious in trying to do everything. So on that subject, following those criteria to say, let's keep focused single platform in Lloyd's, something we can lead, something that's high value, not huge, not a process, not sort of commoditizable risk, something that's not a big, you know, high volume, uh, where I'm not going to spend all my money on processing and that kind of stuff, where I'm going to have perceived high value of the leader. So within that, are there any other classes that you could still get into as you grow out to think, well, if they fulfill those similar sort of criteria, are there other classes that you're not in that you have got your eye on that you might be interested if you, if you had the right team, for example? I think that's possible. At the moment, the biggest thing I can do for the welfare or the benefit of our business is to deliver the plan we've got. So I don't want to get too distracted chasing new options and new ideas. I don't want to close it off, but I can tell you that I have no intention of going to anything new right now. So you've already in the places that you need to be to fulfill the current plan? Absolutely, yes. To fulfill the plan for next year, we have the teams and we have everybody in place. I want to talk more about the Lloyds market in general. You've had a fantastically long career in Lloyds and so has your team, your top team, very seasoned team. What do you think are the fundamental differences starting in Lloyds in 2021 than when you first started? I think there is an awful lot more talent in Lloyd's. I mean, the caliber of the people, I think, particularly over the last 10 years, probably from that 2008 9 period, 
we managed to attract an awful lot of talent into the market. So there's a very smart people, very motivated, very clever people. So I think first and foremost, the biggest difference is the caliber of the people is so much higher, so much smarter. You had lots of smart people before, but nowhere near the number and the depth that you have now. So I think the caliber of people in the market is an awful lot higher. And it's great news. I think closely allied to that, considerably more women in the market. I mean, when I joined, you could spot both of them. I mean, it was sort of ridiculously a male environment and not better for being that. And of course, I think the fact there is much more diversity, particularly, I mean, not in my age group, but in the kind of 30-year-old age group, we're seeing much, much greater diversity in, in every definition of the word which is very encouraging for the industry and not unrelated to my first point that there is much greater talent in the market. Well, guess what? If you have a genuinely open door as much as you can have an open door to letting people in, you'll get a better caliber of person in. So I think those are probably the biggest two is more talent and more diversity. If I had to think of a sort of third one, I'd be interested to know whether this is factually correct or me imagining it, but it feels as though there are more MGAs, more delegated underwriting now than at any point in Lloyd's history. I mean, I'd be interested to go and check that out. So that is a fact-free statement, but it feels like that. It feels as though MGA is popping up everywhere. Some very good ones, but an awful lot more average at best, and probably most of them operations that you've got to be pretty dubious about the longevity and the business model of them. So from my point of view, I don't think it's particularly encouraging that specialty underwriters delegate the one thing that they're meant to be really good at, which is specialty underwriting. So I don't love it. And there's perfectly valid reasons. And I have to say very clearly, some very, very good MGAs out there doing niches or doing areas where you just can't, as an operation in London, get out there and get the breadth of reach without doing it through that channel. But an awful lot more where it feels like, I, I classified once, I described one MGA we were showing once was a sort of young men in a hurry. And it feels like there's an awful lot of those of people wanting to set up make a buck and flog it off after you know, five years. And I don't want to say there's anything inherently wrong with that, but I don't like it. I mean, I grew up in a business where we always looked 10 plus years ahead. We were building something great for the future. And that's exactly what I want to try and do here is not be thinking in these short timeframes, but what is it we could do today to ensure that we have a 10, 20 year time horizon plus. So it's an interesting development that I don't love in the Lloyd's market. So we won't be seeing you giving your pen away anytime soon. You know what? I'm absolutely certain there'll be one of those really good MGAs that I will be desperate to write, but it won't be the backbone of our business, no. The backbone of our business is big individual risks being underwritten individually. And sure, automate it more and make it more efficient, but not let somebody else do it for us. One of those good MGAs that's really found an absolute fantastic niche where they really know how to add value and then that's okay, but otherwise generally know if they're just going to write what you were going to write. Yeah, value over time is by holding the underwriting expertise. I don't want to be just capacity. If all I'm doing is bringing capital to the table, then you don't really need me. It's just go straight to the capital. I just think there's one too many links in the chain at this point. And all of us should be looking for ways to do what we do more efficiently and make it a more affordable product for the customer. And so introducing more elements in the chain that doesn't need to be is not a positive thing in my view. Not even if we've removed so much of the frictional cost of doing business in some technological future where there's very little frictional cost. Oh, I see. We're in fantasy land now. We? <laughs> well, it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, I'll be dead at that point, Mark. So, you know, it won't be my problem. But 
Whichever way you look at it, you've just got to search for the most efficient route from the person who wants to protect their business or themselves through to the capital. And having multiple people involved in the chain is probably not a good thing. Sometimes necessary. That's why you have wholesale markets. That's why we're involved. But I don't think it's a great thing. No, I get it. So this fragmenting of the marketplace with zero frictional costs hasn't happened yet. It might happen at some point in the future when we have this atomized open insurance ecosystem that we talk about with insurtechs and that kind of thing. You're saying, meanwhile, in the real world, every hand in the chain seems to add an extra seven and a half to 10 points. Well, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Is if you genuinely see an NPA come in that has expertise and you don't replicate it with your own existing underwriters and everything else, when I, I can see the kind of cost argument, but how often is that really the case? I mean, most times you've still got an underwriting team yourself. You've still got people sitting there looking at the details, of the underwriting, et cetera. So there's just a huge amount of doubling up. So yeah, I'll spend too long on it, Mark, because there's some great companies out there and I'll sound like I hate all of them. I don't, but I like efficiency and I like individual risk underwriting. Right. But only the very, very best and highest added value ones could come see you, but otherwise don't bother. Right. Actually, it's good to talk about this in terms of, you know, you're in Lloyd's and Lloyd's is in the middle of a large reform process. I don't know. It seems like it's always been that way. But what priorities do you want the Lloyd's leadership to be addressing first? And do you think they've got their priorities right with all the different blueprints and other things that have been going on? Or are you very much encouraged by what's been happening? Well, I mean, I'm encouraged that I think the general sense of the direction of travel is the right one. I think they are fundamentally focused on trying to make this whole process more efficient. So I've got to be pleased that they're working on it. If you ask me what I really wanted out of it, I think it wouldn't be so radically different to what a lot of people in our business would want, which is I want to stop rekeying. I don't want to rekey anything. And I want you to give me as much data as you have. So when it comes to a risk, when it comes to the details, of the risk, the past performance, everything else, if you can give me that, I'm a happy man. So from my point of view, anything that leads to me not having to rekey and gives me as much data as I can physically handle, I'm a happy bunny with. So from my point of view, those would be my priorities. I think my view is not more insightful than the comments you read in the trade press or you will get from having a beer with somebody. I think the challenge in all of this is the ability of Lloyd's to execute on these big complex contracts. And from my perspective, if you had a single company, a unified, together, happy, high-performing company, the chance of introducing big IT contracts and doing that on time and on budget, what number would you put on it, Mark? It's still not that easy, no. Let's say it's a 25%, it's a third. You know, I mean, it's not 50-50. So... That's really hard when you control everything in the decision. But when you have PPL, where the steering group is, how many people are, I mean, I'll say 20, I don't know what it is, from a variety of different backgrounds, all of whom, by the way, are really good, solid people, but they may not, in all the cases, control their own business and what their own business is prepared to do or not prepared to do. And they're trying then to decide and come together in what seems like a totally unaccountable forum to drive through change. And when you don't have accountability, you don't necessarily have authority to make these big decisions. And it ends up being a kind of loose affiliation of business leaders trying to execute an IT contract. And you can pretty much guarantee it's not going to be on time and on budget and maybe won't even get completed. 
but it's going to be really, really difficult. And I suppose, and I'm saying this somewhat from a distance of this whole process, but I look at that and think until we're prepared to change something in that more radically, the chance of success are pretty low. And if you pushed me on what would that be, at the risk of making myself unbelievably unpopular with a whole bunch of people, it feels to me as though if Marsh and Aon decide they're prepared to operate in a certain way with Lloyd's, probably most of us will fall in with that. There'll be some who will hate what I've just said, and I'd be very interested to hear that argument. But it feels to me as though two or three big constituents could probably make a contract and execute more favourably than trying to get everybody on board, everybody happy, and in the way that I think Lloyd's tries to. And they try to, it's very noble, and it's a sort of decent, sincere ambition, but I don't think it's possible. Yep. You've got so many conflicts of interest, potentially, or, or just large brokers are very different from small brokers, and large underwriters are very different from small underwriters. But it sounds like it's not as if you think you could do better yourself. No, I'll be hopeless at it. Absolutely hopeless. No, rest assured, I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying, oh, I've done this a dozen times over. No, no, I mean, far from it. I would be hopeless. But you can't help but look from a distance and say that seems to be the big stumbling block is just so many people with disparate viewpoints and not having that unity. And I say, ultimately, not having the accountability for getting projects done. I remember there was a time when I was just leaving the insurance market when I was tearing my hair out about it ever reforming the London market. The biggest breakthrough seemed to have happened when we got exchanging involved. And then there was accountability because there was this one company had been given the big contracts. And obviously, they were accountable to everybody. And obviously, people used to argue about whether they were or they weren't enough. But at least there was someone to point at and say, make this happen. Right. Do you think maybe we need to do that again or something large like that? Because obviously, you know, what was before exchanging was, was a really disparate market. Would the equivalent be give it to white space and say, when it comes to PPL, just you guys deliver a system that works? Is that the equivalent, do you think, in your mind? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's difficult. But anyway, I think we're on a final iteration of this one that we're certainly at the point where the nettle has been grasped and it now has to work. Otherwise, there may be trouble. Yeah, I mean, they've set down the stall of wanting to have control. I'm not personally particularly obsessed about it. I use lots of software that I have no control over. So I'm, I don't personally really buy that argument, but others do. Smarter people than me do. So we will watch with interest. And if we can help, we'll help. One of the interesting things, you know, you're part of a very disparate class of 2020. Let's say the class of 1993, they would have just said, hey, look at my clean balance sheet with my couple hundred million dollars in the Bank of Bermuda. And 2005, it was pretty much a similar story. But this class, it probably started just before this class, certainly with probably with Convex, actually. Another thing to say, well, we've got no legacy balance sheet, obviously got no worries about old reserves suddenly coming up and catching up with us. But there's also been no technological legacy. It's suddenly become something that has been more sold as an asset. Are you setting yourself in that sort of way? So now that we can do things starting in 2020, 2021, you can build in a cost advantage over your peers. Have you deliberately tried to do that? And, and if so, have you had any success? I don't love the argument. I think it's true. So I'm not what you're saying. I think it's probably true for all startups that you don't have that legacy. Therefore, you have an advantage. But it just feels a bit smug, if I'm honest. I mean, it just feels like, well, you know, lucky for you. I mean, that's a bit of luck rather than sound judgment. So that's not something I'd be shouting about from the rooftops. And I think it doesn't feel quite the same compelling sort of cost advantage for us because, you know, we are spending a lot of time investing in the data and the analytics. We set ourselves up to be a company that 
is really based around great people doing great things with data and with science. So to do that, you need to invest in the teams and the capabilities. So that comes at a cost that not everyone will be carrying. So from my perspective, it doesn't seem or feel quite so obvious, but of course it's there. We have a cost advantage, we don't have a legacy, as luck would have it. What I would say is I think one of the really important things in a business is the joy of having everybody focused on a common line and on a, on a common goal. And actually the challenge for a lot of people with big legacy problems is the distraction for the senior management team. And the fact that the business is just less sure about what it's doing and why and whether it still makes sense. And I think that's one of our big advantages. But again, if we're going to shout scream about anything, I'd like to think it was the fact that we've brought a bunch of really good underwriters to the market, working in areas where we know they can add value and people want to talk to them, rather than crowing over what is almost like, you know, in all certainty over a five or 10 year period, a sort of temporary advantage in terms of cost or legacy. I mean, we'll be busy producing our own legacy before you know it. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Any cost advantage will erode over time. So far more valuable, you're saying to have people who are really enthused and know exactly what they're doing. And this is to remember why they joined Indigo, because it was only it was only in the last year. Exactly right. And I think, you know, investing now in that capability, that boosting, that underwriting capability, and not investing it in brand or overseas networks or anything else, that will produce a cost advantage over time. Or it certainly should produce a sort of performance advantage over time. And clearly, time will be the final judge on that, won't it? Yeah. And it's interesting about your take on technology and analysis. And you mentioned before about algorithmic underwriting, but obviously that has appeared in Lloyd in syndicate form. Does it appeal to you? Or do you think, you know, being a low frequency, high severity sort of business, do you think, is it something not for you? Or would you like to investigate it? Or do you think it's something that's going to really going to suit commoditized things with, you know, standardized wordings and that kind of stuff? No, we're all going to do it. I mean, everybody who listens to your program will all be doing this if we're not doing it already. I mean, if you substitute algorithmic underwriting with rules-based underwriting, which is, in my mind, essentially what it is, I mean, it's been going on for years in the UK motor and homeowners market. On every price comparison website, there's been algorithmic underwriting for a good few years. And without it ever being codified. I mean, let's be honest, it's been the strategy of numerous following market players in Lloyd's for years. Pick a class of business you like, choose a leader you think does a good job, and write a percentage of whatever line they do. I mean, it's a sort of fairly rules-based approach to underwriting. So I don't think there's inherently anything wrong. It's advantageous in many ways. And I think it will add speed and ease in certain areas, even for people like ourselves doing that, exactly what you described, that lower policy count type of book. If it helps ease the renewal process or some other part that you can readily apply that sort of analysis to. I'm not totally convinced about the business case in the medium to long term for an algorithm following market play. When I think about it, I realize the brokers have the data. The brokers can write an algorithm. The brokers can attract capital. So I think it could end up being a fairly low margin play for underwriters doing that. And full credit to the guys that have gone down that road. I think in many ways, the delivery mechanism is as sexy as the algorithmic underwriting itself. Making it easy for brokers to access your capacity is pretty good. But when you get 10 markets doing it, or you get three broker systems offering the same capability, standing out and being the most efficient risk transfer 
I mean, that's just not my business. I mean, I want to use it where it makes sense for us, but it's not a compelling business prospect for me at the moment. And by the way, I've been wrong about dozens of things. So this could be the biggest source of wealth creation for the industry and for investors in our industry. And suppose that suits low return capital as well, low cost. I think that's the ultimate play. I don't see how the market and frankly, the brokers will allow you to make huge margin out of that type of play where you're really using everybody else's expertise and the broker and client data. And what are you bringing? Is there really going to be a unique algorithm that you write that nobody else does that the broker can't write? So I, I am suspicious of the margin on that business over time. It's gone to more on the back burner at Lloyd's, but in the original pre-blueprint vision at Lloyd's from, you know, from a few years ago, from John Neal's beginnings, there was that other view of almost automatic capacity following you, for example, Richard. You, know, you to be the expert, but then to, be able to summon up almost automatic algorithmic capacity that will follow Inigo underwriters. Well, again, we've been doing this for years, haven't we? Through quota share reinsurances, Excel reinsurances, consortium, which is obviously a growing trend. And I'm delighted and feel very humbled by reinsurers and other markets wanting to follow us. And if we can not be abusive in terms of commissions and rates and everything else, and that makes the broker's job easier because we can write a bigger line and solve the problem more easily, I'm delighted to do that. And we've definitely managed to sit with some very good markets with Renry, Munich Re, people who I really respect to put consortiums together following us. So I think we can probably do that. But I don't know that I would describe that as algorithmic underwriting. I think that's more in the sort of tradition of a quota share. But that sort of quick capital or making it much faster, more automatic following you. And also in that model, would you be want to be fully rewarded for that expertise, for, for the added value that you're adding in terms of some sort of leader's fee or with you as its seeding commission or, or, or something else? Well, I think they're going to invest in understanding risk and really fulfilling your role as a leader. There's a very good argument for that. I'm nervous of that concept, I confess. So in a reinsurance and consortium relationship, I'll try and get my costs covered. But I think it's very important in those relationships to have an eye on it being a genuinely long-term relationship. So not being abusive in terms of the kind of commission that you ask for or the rates and the terms that you want to push. So I think it's possible to do that without it being awkward. I think at the moment, Mark, there are days when you will ask me that question and I'll say absolutely compelling argument and we should definitely go for it. And there'll be days when I think, you know what, I don't know if that just upends the whole thing. And there's that classic thing of, you know, you think you solve one problem and you create another. So I would be cautiously interested, I think is how I would summarize it. So you'd say that being a leader should always have its own reward and that you're the one that they show the business to first, right? Well, exactly. And I think your value is the business that you create, where you're hopefully building great relationships, you're bringing solutions to the marketplace, you're being the effective answer to the client's questions that the broker wants. And that's how your business is valued. So that's why I say, I, I think, honestly, Mark, it's one of thousands of questions that I don't really know the answer to. I suppose if your leader fees are higher than everyone else's, then they'll go to a cheaper leader. <laughs> but they might not be as good, but, you know, might not want to get what they pay. The market, I've got a strange feeling about the market will figure it out. I think you're absolutely right. I'll ask you a sort of big question. Other than the class of 2020, 2021, the biggest sort of three-letter acronym of this year has been ESG. I mean, we're just talking about an oil drilling risk and other things. Yeah. How can a specialist insurer like yourself help clients through this transition that we seem to be embarking on? And it seems to be coming a bit faster than perhaps we were expecting. 
I don't know. It's like with all these things, we, you know, we think it's all going to be 30 years in advance. So it turns out that there are things that are happening right now in your own investment portfolio. It's going to be on the underwriting rules. We've got environmental protesters outside in the street telling us to stop doing certain things, and they're being very effective. Yeah. What's your take on all of this? And, and do you think also, is it a big business opportunity rather than just a, a threat to sort of, or a negative to say, well, we can't do this and we can't do that? I don't think it's all negative. I think it's part and parcel of assessing who you're dealing with. I think we want to be associated with good people doing good things. And that could be how they treat their staff. That could be products they design. It could be how they treat the environment. I don't want to build a business where I sit back in my dosage and look back and think, God, I dealt with some pretty awful companies and awful people. And I made a buck. Isn't that great? I, I'm not, I want to look back thinking we did business and built something fantastic, dealing with good people doing the right thing. And clearly, that's a bit idealistic. And there'll be lots of people who disagree over whether company A is a good one or company B is a good one or not. I think we have to take our own view as to whether customers are making a sincere and meaningful investment in moving their businesses from where they are now to where we probably all think they need to be and where they need to head to. And from my perspective, I want to be there alongside them, helping them do that. So I'd be very happy to supply the capacity and the expertise that will help them transfer the risks that are inherent in their business and inherent in that transfer of technology. So I want to be able to respond to that and be a valued business partner. And it's hard to be so specific because each case you'll have to judge on its own merits and you'll find a company that I think is making sincere, decent effort to change and transform its business model. And I'm sure I'll find somebody who will write me an email saying, no, they're not. And we can only really make our own value judgments as to where they fall. What I can say is the environment to me has been a hugely important topic for a long time. I've been a member of Greenpeace for more years than I could count, over 30 years. So from my perspective, the idea that I would suddenly want to start getting involved with some pretty, frankly, lousy companies treating the environment as though it's a disposable thing that they don't care about, no thank you. So it's really about sustainability and long-term sustainability. I can't help thinking, and I may be blissfully idealistic in this viewpoint, but I can't help thinking that it's dealing with good people. I don't think there are so many. I mean, there's some truly awful companies out there, and, and you've got to look at the way they've treated their workers. I would name some companies that you'll find Netflix documentaries on, but I'm not brave enough. To understand <laughs> I'm and say sure I've flown with some of them, yes. <laughs> yeah, but there's some pretty awful companies. And, you know, why do you want to do business with them? And, and yeah, I know an awful lot of people, friends of mine who work in companies that are making very genuine, sincere attempts to transform their business in a way that all of us would applaud. So we'll just have to make those individual value judgments, I think. Or that some of the industry sort of do you applaud some of these schemes where the industry is trying to help codify the ESG, give it a number out of 100 to help you as an underwriter know whether you can say yes or no in terms of are they, are they the right place along the spectrum of good and bad on ESG? Well, I love the idea because anything that helps me make a more informed choice is a very positive thing, but it sounds a bit like that kind of dolphin-friendly badge on the kind of tuna. It, it's something you need to be rightly sceptical of as to the motivation of the people assigning those sorts of rewards and marks. So I think with a certain healthy cynicism that probably all of us who are underwriters inherently have, I think that can be useful, but not gospel. Yep. 
I'd like to ask another big picture sort of question in terms of the culture you want to build at Inigo. I wouldn't want to preempt what you're going to say, but what sort of culture are you trying to build? It's only very rare in your career that you get the chance to start from zero and say, with a blank piece of paper and say, what kind of ideally, what kind of company would I like to build? It's a really good question. One we spent a lot of time thinking about because you're right, exactly as you say, how often do you get that chance? So two or three themes that I would say keep coming back when we talk about this. One is it's got to be fun. And I hope it doesn't sound trying to start with that, but I meet so many people who work in big companies where they feel totally subsumed by this huge organization and no one's having any fun anymore. And I don't think fun has to be diametrically opposed to being professional. And it's not in some sort of rugger bugger, you know, rough bullying kind of, I mean, it's genuinely, it's okay to come to work and have a laugh and not take yourself too seriously. So I think you've got to create an environment where people inherently want to come and work. And I think a big part of that and a big part of a successful organization is the sort of low ego, high collaboration. And when we talk to people, when I talk to people that we've employed, the one thing that gets played back more than anything is the attraction of going to a company that's building a culture that is based around being a low ego, high collaboration culture. Because you don't end up with the same sort of silos. You don't end up with the superstar underwriter who betrays every bad type of behavior that betrays your culture. But by the way, he's making loads of money. <laughs> I'm not interested in those sort of characters. Literally, I don't care how much money he or she makes. I don't want nothing to do with them. My life is too short. So we like people who will sort of keep a low ego and who will collaborate. And we're all remunerated on the same bottom line. So we don't have any kind of special deals or anything else. So we are all in this together. And I think that helps reinforce that sort of mindset that, look, if there's someone over there doing something you don't like, you better say so, because we all have a shared responsibility in this. And I think it encourages a level of openness and a sense of ownership that means that people don't put up barriers and I just care about my little cat, I don't care what everybody else is doing. And this has got to be a collaborative venture. We've got more chance of getting the right answer if everyone's brain power is kind of being put into this. So it's a pretty flat structure and a highly collaborative environment. So from that point of view, I think that really, really pleased the way that's developed. The other thing we're putting a big emphasis on is learning and development. I personally have always loved inquisitive people. I love people who just want to find out. I love those sort of people who, it doesn't matter how busy they are, they just seem to get stuff done. You know, And they're permanently trying to find a quicker, better, easier way. Permanently, they go home and they're trying to look at, why does this happen? Why is that happening? It's permanently kind of looking to understand more and more. And so we've really played big on the learning and development piece as well. And an obligation that isn't just for the sort of 20-year-old coming to your business, but it's an obligation on me and my peers to be continually looking for ways to learn and develop and find new skills and find champion ways where we can see new things in risk in the way that you analyze risk. So the learning development will be a really, really key piece. We call that get smart. I mean, it's sort of under the logo of get smart in the values that we have. So if I create that, I'll be really pleased. And so far, we've, we've made a very good start. So it's the sort of culture where someone who's really experienced and incredibly knowledgeable is expected to share that with some of the junior members of the underwriting team, for example. It's only going to work if they do. I mean, it will only be a great organization if people have that desire to learn and that desire to sort of pass it on as well. 
And do you have that reverse mentoring idea? Have you embraced any of that? Do you get in with some more junior? We have some of that going on. We we haven't formalised it, but it's happened because I think because there's more people who have either read about it, heard about it, experienced it elsewhere. So we've sort of softly encouraged it. And so far, it seems to be working quite well. But we haven't as yet got a kind of formal programme to do that. But it's amazing how the mentoring of both ways has really just developed all on its own. And that, maybe that's because this type of culture appeals to a certain type of person that would want to do that mentoring, both being mentored and providing that guidance to somebody else. Well, it sounds really good. It's, you know, it sounds like you've just started as you mean to go on, and I wish you well with that. Well, it's never easy, Mark, so let's not get too ahead of ourselves. This is early days, and I'm pleased the way it's going, and we're going to put a lot of emphasis on trying to maintain that culture and that sense of how we treat each other. And on that sense of a mission of where you're going medium to long term, I mean, you said earlier about some of the MGAs sounding a bit like PE people who've got this five-year plan or they have to sell in year seven yeah. or whatever it is. So I don't want to preempt, but it sounds like you don't want to build a company like that, the sort of thing where you know you sell the business on and buy yourself a yacht in year seven. It doesn't sound like that's what your plan is. There's two sorts of business, one that wants to go out and bang year seven and make lots of money or another that wants to build a brand and build something that stands the test of time and almost sort of like has their name above the door for forever. Are you more that kind? I want to build a great business. The real pleasure in life would be creating a business where you've got super smart people. I mean, really smart people doing some extraordinary things with data, with science, with sponsoring research and trying to understand risk more. And if you get that combination of really driven, motivated, smart people, and you give them the ability to investigate and to understand, and you really invest in that, I think you've got a compelling business. And I would feel massively pleased with that. And I'm very fortunate because I've got a number of people who work with me who are super smart, very genuinely way brighter than me. And from my point of view, I'll hang around as long as I can to get them up and running and be experienced enough to be able to run the business. And as soon as they're there, I'm heading for the door. I think it's a duty of every CEO to think about the business. It's not really about what you want, per se. It's not what keeps you happy. It's what's best for the business. And the best thing I can do for the business is attract some unbelievable people, train them up to be the leaders that they need to be, and, and let them get on with it. And so the time frame will be whatever the time frame will be. And then did that flavor the way that you sort out investors as well? Because obviously there are different types of investors. Some are much more long-term than others. Yeah, very much so. So we very deliberately ended up with a mix of investors. So we have four equal partners. So that was, again, part of it. We didn't want to be over-dependent on any one. So we have four equal partners in the, in the venture. And we have two PE houses, one sovereign wealth fund and one pension fund. And I think that diversity is going to give us some optionality. The biggest thing we can do to dictate our future and to give us the options that we want, which is very much to remain a, a strong, independent business, is just to produce some great numbers. And if we focus on that, the options and where we take this business over the next 10 years will be so much more in our own control. So that's what we've got to focus on. That's why I'm trying to get the team to focus on more than anything else. And PE houses, we all know, will have a shorter time frame and look to get some or all of their money out. And there's lots of ways to do that. But I have two other partners who conceive we're much longer hold. So because you can swap in those sort of investors anyway, can't you? you can, you yeah, can... yeah. I mean, uh, literally a half a dozen different things that we can do to. I was going to say safeguard. I think safeguard is the wrong word, but I think 
to allow us that continuity and that independence that I know everybody in our business values and you know, long may that continue. I just want to run a business where there is this sense of opportunity and motivation with some people who you look at and think, God, when I go in the room, I've got to try really hard to keep up with these people. <laughs> That's a very nice place to be. Sounds really, really interesting, Richard. I wish you all the best with your development and growth. You're very kind. And thank you so much for taking the time. I've really, really enjoyed this discussion. Really good luck with that plan. Oh, bless you. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. And I'll take as much luck as, as you can give me. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Thank you.